Almighty God, you are in heaven and we are on earth. We come before you with awe, with wonder, and at the same time with childlike confidence. Though we are not worthy, yet we are made worthy by your adopting us into your very family. Incredible. Beyond our ability to fully comprehend the contrast and the privilege that we are enjoying this moment. Father, we, we want to come to you to seek your speaking to our hearts this morning through your loving word. Father, your spirit alone can enter into the locked doors of hearts that can cut through the dullness that we may have layered on it with the distraction and confusion and weariness of this world and penetrate and bring new life. And so we ask for your spirit to work unhindered by the human instruments. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Feel uh, led this morning to the second epistle of Peter, chapter three. Second Peter, chapter three. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this, they willingly are ignorant of that, of that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. And account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. And also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. 
Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, ye, lest ye also be led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's kneel to pray. Dear Father in heaven, as we come before thee this morning, as we assemble as a group of believers, though we are weak and though we are frail, we take courage, we take uh, strength from the fact that our Lord and Savior, our Master, is here now. He is among us, speaking to each heart, those that know thee for many years, those that known you just a little while, and those that do not truly know you. Dear Father, we thank thee for this word we've read already this morning. This word inspired by the Holy Spirit, this word written by a dearly beloved brother, an apostle, someone who walked with Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago and now desires to stir up us, to stir us up to remember what is coming, to remember the promises that have been given us, that God, that thou art not uh, like a man, thou art slack, everything is sure, everything is amen, it will be. Dear Father, stir us up by this fact, that thou art true, thou art faithful, thou art coming again. Dear Father, help us to examine clearly, not uh, listening to the, the lies of the evil one, but listening to thy word. Help us to examine clearly our lives this morning as we lay ourselves before thee, as we open ourselves up to see what thou wouldst have to speak to us. Where are we falling into the, the trap of, of this world, of, the, of the, the lies of the evil one, the, the scoffers and the mockers? Where are we listening to that and being discouraged by it and deflated, dear Father, and being hindered from the, the urgent, important work of the kingdom? Dear Father, stir us up this morning. We are confident that this is thy desire and thy will, and thou canst accomplish this through thy Holy Spirit. We have but to submit to it, to be, as was already prayed, little children, listening and heeding. Dear Father, this morning hour, as thy word goes out in many different formats and, and forums, dear Father, all around this globe, we pray for its, its effectual working. We pray that it would not be hindered by the devices of men, by governments that would stand in the way of it, by... Uh, cultures and lifestyles of ease that would, would scorn a Sunday morning gathering, a, a gathering of believers. Dear Father, we pray that thy word would not be hindered here in this culture. We know that those around us desperately need to hear it. Dear Father, we pray for those this morning that are on sick beds, those that are, are physically prevented from coming and worshiping with believers. Here in, in Toronto and elsewhere too, those that are would love to be uh, encouraged by the, the, the hearing of thy word. Dear Father, help them to comfort themselves and to strengthen themselves in thy spirit who is not bound, who can supply all the needs wherever we are in whatever circumstance we are. Dear Father, we pray for healing. We thank thee for healing, that prayers that have been answered in our midst, in our own midst. Dear Father, help us not to forget those examples. Help us not to put them aside lightly or to be tempted to explain them away but to acknowledge thy working, the answers of prayers, of fervent prayers, dear Father, not for our glory, but certainly for our benefit, that we can see thy power and thy working. Dear Father, as we would now meditate on this word, we pray for the brother that is to speak it. We pray for him in the position of, as a servant, as he serves us truly out of this word. Be with him, dear Father, anoint him, give him the full measure of thy spirit, to speak in the way that is best for us to hear. And, and dear Father, we pray for us too, to have that servant attitude as we would listen, not as consumers, not as, uh, as just uh, people that, that want to be fed, dear Father, but truly as those that would want to take this word and apply it, to humble ourselves to hear it and, and to seek to do the things that we hear. Dear Father, 
There are many more things that we ought to pray. Forgive us where we fall short, both in prayer and in asking. Uh, we pray now we're mindful of the governments and, and the shifting and changing of times and south of the border and um, uh, wherever, dear Father, we know that thou art in control. Thou art the one who is putting up and putting down those that are in authority. And there is a king eternal who reigns in the heavens and we rejoice in that fact. We're comforted by it. Dear Father, we pray all these things now, looking to Jesus, the one who has started that good work in us, the one who will complete it under the day of the Lord Jesus, as we trust and believe in him. Amen. Dearly beloved brothers and sisters and friends, I know this passage is familiar. It is not the first time the Lord has led me to meditate upon it. And yet we are at a different time, a different place. And some of these words are much more meaningful <laughs> given our time and place. So bear with me because that's what the Apostle Peter himself said in the very first verse here. He says that, He's writing a second letter and he has the same purpose to cause them to remember, to bring them their minds back into alignment with truth. And, and we come here together, brothers and sisters and friends, and one might say, well, I already am familiar um, with what the Bible says. I'm certainly familiar with that brother and what he has a penchant to talk about. Um, so, you know, is this a, a waste of my time? And uh, certainly the Athenians like to sit around and always learn a new thing and be distracted with a new thing. But the truth is singular. And really, it's useful and helpful for us to come and to be reminded of truth because there's a lot of pressures just trying to just distract us. So it's, it's good that we, our minds are stirred to remembrance. Now, what... Peter is saying he wants them to be mindful of the words, and he's referring to initially the Old Testament, the holy prophets, and also the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So he's in a position where he actually spent three years in, 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 at the, in the dust of the rabbi with Jesus living, understanding not only what he said on the Sermon on the Mount, but how he lived it and heard many things that aren't even recorded for us, but these things are preserved because you and I need it. I just want to point out a parallel passage. Uh, this passage is very parallel with Jude, a single uh, chapter epistle by the, uh, Jude, who uh, the brother of Jesus, who said, in verse 17, Beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus, how they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. And that's exactly parallel with what we're reading here, that Jesus um, and the his apostles which are sent, that's literally what it means, to tell us that in the last days there will be scoffers walking after their own lusts. Uh, scoffers, mockers, it's, the, I believe, the same Greek word. Uh, it's saying that people who, who arrogantly are derisive, make fun of those who hold a position. They're, 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 their way of communication, it's not that they, they deal with reason and argument. It's they just say, you are so silly. You're not even worth my time to talk about. I laugh at you. Uh, have you heard that style of argument? Uh, have you heard that form of communication? Uh, especially uh, directed towards people who believe this book and uh, the words of the truth that we're here to listen to this morning? Maybe this is another indication of what time we live in. And uh, I know Brother Doug talks about uh, when he was a, 
uh, an athlete and, and there, there's just a certain style of, of getting you off uh, and uh, you get a pitch that they just, you know, that is not across the plate but aimed nearly at you to just get you to, to, to feel threatened, to get you to rattle your nerves, to keep you from being prepared to actually hit the legal ball. And in some ways, that's what's going on with scoffing. It's an attempt to, to make you second guess, you know, whether you have a leg to stand on because you're being ridiculed. And therefore, you question, you know, why that, that's a kind of a panic button for all of us. None of us like to be ridiculed. None of us want to appear to be a fool. And so it kind of makes you step back, just like you do from that, that illegal pitch there, to say, hey, you know, uh, am I foolish to believe words in a book that is written thousands of years ago and, um, you know, in the light of today's scientific age and all the new information that's been brought to light. And that's certainly uh, a technique that um, not only is useful in debate, we can see how Satan himself has done that. And, and this, this idea that this is actually correlates with a spirit of the time, the spirit of the age, uh, we find that also in 2 Timothy as well. Uh, that uh, in chapter 3 says that in, in the last days, right, uh, now this is now panned down through, through Paul as well as through Peter as well as through Jude, right, uh, men will be lovers of their own selves, and, and listen to the, the, the um, description here, covetous, boasters, proud. That word could also be translated arrogant. Um, blasphemers, speaking ill of things that are, uh, are sacred, um, and so on, unthankful, unholy, despisers of those that are good, um, high-minded, etc., lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. So we see this kind of characteristic, and it seems very aggressive. It might make us feel defensive. It might make us feel inferior. <clears throat> now, what in here in um, Peter is the message that's being predicted? It says, uh, where's the promise of his coming? They're deriding the fact that we live here in, in hope of a better future. Uh, we believe that this state of things, negative as it is, is a temporary state. It's, it's a fallen world, and that one day the king of this world is going to come and set it to right. The Jews had that hope. They, they believed in the Messiah. Of course, they, 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 they thought too small, and they localized that, you know, our, our kingdom, our, our little nation will once again be set at right and, uh, you know, be lifted from oppression. But really, we understand that, that God's actually going to fix all of creation, that the lion will lay down with the lamb, and that, in fact, this whole polluted planet is going to be trashed. And he is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Um, now, so we have this hope not only for the physical order of things. Amazingly, God it deals with the root of the problem because initially there was a pristine and perfect creation, but it was the heart of man that, that fell and created the corruption and it's that heart of man, the universal problem. People say this book is old, but this book describes human nature in a very, um, very accurate way. That because we haven't changed, our, our technological sophistication has changed, our intellectual sophistication has changed, although the Greeks were pretty sophisticated. Uh, but but our motives of our heart and the reason why we do things and the twist in, a, in, in, in our selfishness and so on that allows us to justify doing things, that's universal. And unfortunately, so is pride. Pride is actually pre-exists even humanity, right? We see that 
That was the initial sin. That was the initial rebellion when, when Satan said, I, 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 I will ascend. I will take the place of God. Somehow he was so arrogant in his thinking that he thought he was greater than his creator. He thought that he could displace his creator. He thought that he was entitled to this adoration and worship that was his creator's. You know, and, and it's that arrogancy where we as humans feel like we can displace God, that we can be in control. That uh, uh, is the, the corruption in our hearts. We see here the attack is God's not coming. These things aren't going to get better. Um, this is all there is. This is all there always was. Um, uniformitarianism, we've discussed that in the past, right? You know, even science itself shows that actually that's not true. And maybe, you know, in the past we would say that socially things were fairly stable. You know, we live in a pretty good secular society where people have pretty decent values. And if you keep your nose clean, you'll be, you know, live a decent life. Uh, work hard, study, and, and, and all will be well. Uh, I think some of those assumptions have been challenged. I think now we can see that not only physically is this play, world not stable, uh, socially this world's not stable, even in our, we've been really in this little island here, you know, the rest of the continents have gone through a fair amount of turmoil uh, militarily, and we've been kind of isolated with that on this side of the pond, but all of a sudden, you know, this, the scenes on the, on the streets of, of, of North America, you know, you see the same scenes of contested elections and fires and police and, you know, the same stuff you, you, you despised and looked down on across the planet has come home. For this they willingly are ignorant of. So, please uh, take the time to understand. Scoffing is coming from a place of weakness. The reason why you use aggression and mockery is because you really can't argue the facts. The reason why you belittle your opponent with ad hominem attacks is because you can't stand there on reason alone. And because you want to make the other person feel belittled and leave the field because you don't have the truth on your side. This they willingly are ignorant of. There is a deliberate self-deception involved in the position of the aggressive atheist. There is a deliberate self-deception involved in the position of someone who wants to deny the reality of the fact they were created. That's what they said. This they deliberate, willing to ignore what? That the word by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth was created. Something that the ignorant savage in the, in the depths of Congo or the wilds of Papua New Guinea understands intuitively, we have in our intelligence, as we read in Romans 1, been able to fool ourselves into thinking, no, 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 that's not true. It was just through a matter of random mutations that order and, 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 and encoding and everything arised in our complexity. It was just time and chance. You know, talk about faith but willingly ignorant. This position of weakness, it's almost a form of insecurity, you know, that we want to believe certain things. And why do they want to believe it? They say it's because they want to walk after their own lusts, the same thing in Jude. It said, you know, the reason why they do these things is because there's things they feel like doing they don't want to be restricted from, right? It says, says they're sensual, walk after their own ungodly lusts. Same thing in, uh, we see in 2 Timothy 3. I want to enjoy my life without restriction. 
that's my motivation. Something is in the way. There is a standard of judgment with a lawgiver. So I don't want to be aware of that. I want to be willingly ignorant of that. So I will come up with an alternative narrative so that I can justify my own lifestyle and end up living uh, from day to day. I understand um, insecurity. Insecurity that leads to pride. You see, pride, the, 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 the weird thing with this arrogance and pride, you think that someone who's proud and arrogant and dismissive of other people, they must be very secure in their own position because they're certainly coming across that way. But... <laughs> The unintuitive thing is the opposite. That, that pride is often driven from a desire to, to um, project something that isn't true. Just like this willing self-deception, we are trying to deceive the rest of the world along with us. Pride blinds us because we are choosing to believe a lie because we don't want to accept what might be true about ourselves, about our own fears of inadequacy, our fears of failure, our fears of, of not being accepted. Uh, I remember... kind of. I, I grew up as a child of immigrants, um, you know, we had to save some money, uh, so we didn't buy pants as frequently as maybe other kids in the schoolyard, right? And so my pants ended up, you know, being higher off the ground because I didn't change them as fast as, as uh, you know, we, we didn't buy new pants. And they, they weren't the right style, right? We bought it at, I forget, was it Byway or whatever the local bargain place was of the day, you know, not at, you know, Levi's or whatever, right? So I had out-of-style pants that were way too small, and uh, so, you know, the kids walked around behind me in the schoolyard saying, hey, you, you, there's a flood coming, right? Why are you wearing floods? I think that was the terminology, right? And, uh, you know, there, there was other things that I was, I was picked on, right? I was probably too nice a guy, didn't fight back, you know, and, you know, I remember feeling very ostracized, you know, grade five was probably the, about the, a real low point there, uh, where they, they, my nickname was, there was this one girl in particular, I, I still remember the name Susan, it's got that negative, oh, my wife's middle name is Susan, so that's been wiped, wiped out, thankfully, but, you know, uh, <clears throat> called me fairy boy, um, so, you know, you, you can get these scars and these, these uh, insecurities as you grow up in a, in a world that, you know, people mock you, make fun of you, um, not on a legitimate basis necessarily. And then you feel like you've got to compensate that. Right? Maybe, you know, you feel like, you know, someone's smarter than you are and you've got to compensate. Or maybe you feel someone's better socially. I, I, I have to fight against that, you know, because... Because I felt like I was not cool, you know, and I had this insecurity about that, then all of a sudden I felt like, well, you know, I think I'm better than the people who are cool, right? And I got to put down all cool people. And I remember, you know, you know, after being a Christian, God having to correct me, you know, here is someone who is a good, solid uh, practicing committed Christian, but they're also popular. And in my mind, if you're popular, you, you've, there's something wrong with you all because of my own insecurity, right? You know, I, I have to say anyone who's popular is bad because the popular people are the ones who made me feel bad when I was, you know, if I analyze it, right? And so our insecurities can cause us to, to put down or to feel arrogantly superior than, without a basis, other people. We're willingly uh, suppressing the truth to prop up our own fragile egos, or our own desires for illegitimate things. All these things can drive us 
to a willing ignorance of unwilling to face the truth. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. This is the accusation. The accusation is, look, uh, this book is two thousands of years old. It's promised Jesus' return. It's not happening, right? Or, you know, the prophets, you know, are promising the Messiah even longer, right? And the, and the Jewish, uh, re, well, actually, it's kind of started, but the Jewish state, you know, coming together is not really being, uh, you know, happening as prophesied or and so the accusation is God didn't do it yet, therefore his promises are suspect. And, and the, the defense here is you're not, you're not being ignorant. The reason why God hasn't, the Lord's, God's not slack, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the reason why these prophecies of final judgment and final restoration of all things are not true yet is because God's giving you time. And while, you know, we sit behind our walls of pretend walls of, of arrogance and I'm superior than other people, God is allowing the insult and the slap in his face and the rejection of his sacrifice because he wants to give you time to let down those walls of self-deception if you can before you start believing your own lies and allow it and repent and recognize I was wrong. I, I, I did reject God. I did choose. I am guilty. Not, and, and of course, that's a terrifying thing because what do you have to stand on at that point? What hope do you have when you admit that the emperor has no clothes respect, supposed to, uh, with respect to the fact that I have failed and I am inadequate and that these things are actually true and I stand before you all without my persona that I've carefully crafted to try to gain your acceptance and your social uh, you know, respect and I honestly admit I am a failure and I have sinned then what do I have to stand on? But thankfully, Jesus has come and he has taken the disgrace, the dishonor, as he hung naked on a cross, bearing the weight of my sin and yours, of my inadequacy, of my failures and yours so that you can stand clothed not with your own patchwork of lies and projections, but in the white raiment of his unstained righteousness. There's that picture in the Old Testament of the, of the priest with the dirty robes who's, who, who's exchanged as a, as a picture that Jesus wants to exchange your rags for his, his clothing. People want to, to there, there, there's talk even in theological searches, we want to unhitch the Old Testament. You know, it's embarrassing. There's this vindictive God there of, of righteousness and, and they accuse him of, of genocide and infanticide and, and all these things is because God declared justice on certain peoples at certain times as if he is, is, is a God who who, um, you know, we can recreate in the image of a Hitler uh, who, you know, wants to wipe out a certain people group because his irrational uh, hatred based on bloodlines or something. And the same thing here about, um, about being long-suffering. You know, that with the Canaanites, where God did command their destruction, he said, not now. He let his own people suffer under the whip of the Egyptians for 400 more years until they had gone beyond a point of redemption. 
before he brought the judgment down to wipe them out. And then say, oh, but it's not fair. Okay, so, so it wasn't genocide. God isn't being arbitrary. He doesn't some, have some irrational hatred towards a particular ethnic group because he feels superior and he's got some kind of his own uh, insecurity complex. God doesn't need any of that. But God actually is in a position of judge. And as a position of judge, we expect the policeman to bring justice. If someone is, you know, uh, beating me senseless and robbing me and the policeman stands there and says, well, you know, I'm I, you know, I just want to be kind to everyone and I don't want to use for, like we say, well, 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 you're in that position, you're entrusted, you're given the right of force because we expect you to protect us, to bring justice. And we expect God not to. God does bring justice and he did bring justice. And also we expect the doctor to maybe, you know, save the life of a mother of seven children, you know, even though it has to sacrifice the, the, the life of an unborn child because they have to make those decisions for the greater good. Has to cut out the tumor out of us even though it hurts to save our life. And so we don't expect God to interfere in history, to, to judge a certain people group and to displace them based on his own time tell. We don't see that he's sovereign over nature, and maybe God's judgment is going to happen in our day and age, that maybe he's been long-suffering as we in this country have abandoned God for hundreds of years, and we have had a, a, a vacuum of values and the fear of God. We need to be careful that we're not infected by these things, that we ourselves do not come under God's judgment. And so the fact that God done, but then the objection is, yeah, but God killed children in the process. Well, some of that, you know, God didn't wipe out every man, woman, and child because we can clearly see in the next verse that says, like, don't intermarry with them in Deuteronomy 8. God clearly didn't do it because we see them later on in history. But even so, if someone is innocent, then what happens? God has the right to give us life. He has the right to take it away. He is not like me. If I go and take someone's life, I am not God, and I'm thankful I'm not given that responsibility, but he has the right to give and to t take back what is given. Naked came I, naked will I return, and I need to be thankful at every point, says Job. God has the right uh, to, to um, God, when we die, we know that is a transition. It's not a final point. When I die, I am moving from this short mortal life. I was talking with my dad, you know, he's gonna be 88. You know, that's longer than the Bible promised, four score years if you're strong. But even so, we know that's not gonna last forever. And then we, but that's not gonna be the end of my dad when he faces that finally. It's not the end of our, our sister Maria Kusitsky who's going to have her funeral uh, the next day or so. It's a transition to an eternal life. And so for that innocent child, the fact that they're ushered to an eternity without, you know, where they, they will be saved and blessed forever in the presence of God is not an evil thing. For, for, for me to cut short a life when I don't understand the big picture would be an evil thing, but not for God, who has that, understands the consequences of doing that. And if he chose in the Old Testament to use human instrumentalities for his judgment, that was that time and place. That is not the time and place today. We need to understand there is a difference between the Old Testament and the New with respect to God's um, use of the people of, uh, of, of Israel, that he used them as um, a, the Galatians says, as a teaching, uh, as a schoolmaster, to, to learn and uh, that, you know, when they did right, they were blessed. When they did wrong, they were punished. And the, there was a, a people group. There was a um, piece of land that had a special place in God's plan. Now that's not the case. So we cannot use the same things to argue for people privilege. 
And, and, and there's this transposition that happens with manifest destiny, with, 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 with feeling like, you know, oh, you know, the white colonists had, had you know, manifest, you know, uh, privilege, you know, and, and, you know, with, you can see the same thing with uh, um, Darwin and, you know, feeling that they were more evolved and so on, that we can, we can try to argue for special privileges for certain races. And God's not into that. He's clearly and, you know, refer to my sermon in June about how we are created of one blood and of one God's not respective persons and that neither should we be. And he has a problem with us when we are. Read that in James. And so for us to think that because we have a godly heritage in this country, we're going to be spared, don't, don't assume that. Because we have a godly heritage in this church because people have suffered and gone to prison to, for their convictions, don't assume that. We are each going to have to stand before God. But, and it's the Old Testament that says God does not delight in the death of the sinners. He does bring adverse circumstances, Psalm 90, but he does that in a redemptive purpose to get us to wake up and to turn back to him. So even the negative things in our life are redemptive in his big picture, which we don't completely see. Job's never told the whole big picture. We get a little bit of the backstory, but he never get, he gets to hear it. And so God's not slack. But we have to understand his purpose and trust in his purpose, even when we happen to be going through a dark time. Even when we happen to be going, the ones going through suffering, it's easy for us to stand back and, and, and say this when we're, you know, in a point of security and being fed and so on. But, you know, when we suffer, that's when it's a choice to believe in the character of God. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him, Job said. And his character and his motivation is that he wants all to come to repentance. He wants to redeem us. And even the negative things in our life, in the lives of others, we need to understand in the light of his purpose. That he's being patient even with the evil. That we may want to say, well, that person deserves justice now. And if it was, I was God, I'd be calling fire down from heaven. Well, you do not know the heart of God. Jesus told James and John, the sons of thunder. Because that's not the heart of God. The heart of God actually weeps even for that sinner who is perpetrating the injustice. He wants them to repent. So what is the heart of God? What is our role when we see chaos and problems around us? Should we align with one faction or the other? Should we storm uh, the, the counting centers with guns? Or should we, we try to effect social justice via force? Because we see the problems that are happening. Jude, in the parallel passage, he, he's saying... Um, You know, these mockers, they're walking at their own lusts. Separate yourselves from them. Oh, they separate themselves. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves in your most holy faith, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy, and of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. There, there, there is a, there needs to be a recognition of the dangerousness of these willful lies. There needs to be a recognition that these lies can get inside of us. That we can lose our fear of God. That we can become insensitive to injustice because we're so surrounded by it in our culture. That's why those cultures had to be wiped out surrounding Israel. Because they were and they did become infected because they were compromising with cultures that are corrupt. We are not immune just because we have the name apostolic Christian, just because we have had an experience with God and we have his spirit within us doesn't make us immune to the lives of Satan. 
we need to be vigilant even when we are rescuing those who are captives. And it is rescuing. The Bible talks about, uh, you know, our attitude. It's not one of arrogance, because that's the attitude of the mocker we're rescuing. Our attitude is one of loving patience, Timothy will tell us. To rescue people out of the snares they have caught themselves in, in their own willful ignorance, out of their own insecurities and their own twisted desires. You can rescue them, but you need to do it in God's spirit of love. You need to do it with perseverance. You need to be willing to be insulted and to have, because Proverbs will tell you what mockers do to you. They, they, they will just tear into you. They don't appreciate being told the truth. And so we need to approach this being willing to take the arrows and slings that our Lord took and to rescue without comp being compromised. <clears throat> Uh, I remember, I remember, the, the, I'm thinking of Psalm 1 also talks about, you know, don't sit in the seat of the scornful. I remember being with my peers. And, and they just got this attitude, it's thick, they weren't converted. Some of them were smarter than me, they could beat me in a game of risk. I thought I was pretty good at that, but they were smarter. But the attitude, the mockery, well, you know, my parents, they got this thick accent. I don't respect them, they didn't say that, but their attitudes and their mockery and their imitation of, of those thick European accents, it's said it plenty. They're not in touch. And now that mocking person has gone so far. It's sad. Thought he was going to be a better Christian than all these Christians and where that person has gone and I've seen it in myself that when you are proud and arrogant and you think you're somebody the Bible says you know nothing as you ought to know he that thinketh he stand take heed lest he fall but if we are humble if we are not arrogant towards even Satan's power because I know my own insidious being infected by the public school of my day and the lies I've had to undo in my own mind. And I, I pity the children who are having to face the stronger cultural lies this day. We need to rescue our own children. And, I, and we need to do it with humility and reliance on God's grace and God's power and a fear of God. Here we read, finally, you know, the, we got to keep the big picture in mind. The day of the Lord is going to come. Even though it's not here yet, it's God's grace. This word's going to burn. All these things will be dissolved. If that's the case, what kind of decisions should I be making? You know, what am I investing in? Am I really living like a pilgrim? That I'm just a passing through like I sing? Or am I building my own empire here? Say, this is all going to be dissolved. Therefore, it matters that I keep myself pure. It matters that I keep the fear of God. It matters that I recognize who's really in control. That I don't get swept into the intimidation of, 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 of either knowledge or money or power or all these corrupting things that people rely on and we can see is destroying our culture in the people of this day. We want to keep ourselves distinct from that. If God blesses you with money, be careful. If God blesses you with brains, be careful. If God blesses you with all these things that are seen to be privileged, stay humble. Stay in tune with the Holy Spirit. Keep your garments pure. Don't allow... Yeah, I remember because, you know, my, maybe my parents' generation didn't go past grade 8. They didn't learn how to lie in school. They didn't learn how to take up a position you don't believe in it and effectively argue for something that you know isn't true. They didn't learn critical reasoning to second-guess everything. They did learn how to have integrity. They didn't learn how to tell the truth under all circumstances, even when it hurt them. 
The song that says, you know, the, the one that swears is hurt and doesn't change. They did learn not to justify their own lusts. So just because I can argue around them because I've learned better in school doesn't make me right. I need to respect and honor integrity as opposed to eloquence, style, and a surface. Looking, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought I to be in all holy conversations and godliness? Looking for haste in the day of God where everything will be dissolved, the elements themselves melting from heat. Nevertheless, we look for his promise for new heavens and new earth. Wherefore, beloved, seeing ye look for such things, be diligent. They may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. May the Lord bless his word. The message we heard this morning, uh, one of the key takeaways I have from it is that connection between willful ignorance and pride. That term willful ignorance, just think about that term for, for a moment. Ignorance means you don't know something and willful, you're willingly that I don't really want to know about it. And how really that springs from pride. If you are the arbiter of truth, or you, are, you are the one that is filtering and deciding what your version of truth is based on what effect it ha has on you and uh, your own definition, your own sense of who you are and, and all, all of your ideas, that's really a position of pride. And you will never be truly knowledgeable, truly knowing the truth of what God says about you and then the wonderful plan of salvation and all the glorious things that are in the gospel. I was reminded of that passage in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 where this picture is given of, of, of ignorance and of willful ignorance. Verse 10, and talks about the end, end of times and, and Satan being a great deceiver with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Those two things, a love of the truth or a love of yourself. And really, I think it comes down to that. Whether you love yourself, whether you think that you are the center of things, or whether you realize how much you need a savior, how much you need uh, something outside of yourself, which will determine then whether you gain that knowledge of the truth or whether you remain in willful ignorance, whether you, in the end, uh, are even deceived to the point of God giving you over to deception and, and, uh, and, and, a, and a horrible end, or whether you will have this miracle of grace and power, the first song we sang about in the service this morning, True Simplicity of Spirit. That will reveal to you all the truth that you need to know that establishes you, that, that assures you, that, that assures you that you're loved and that you have a purpose, or whether you will be deceived, willingly deceived by the lies of the enemy. I hope that that truth, which I've not summarized very well, but that truth would, would make itself clear to you this morning, that you'd be able to see um, how much humility versus pride is at the core of that, of that understanding of the truth or rejecting it and being confirmed in your ignorance. May God grant us that spirit of simplicity, uh, that spirit of humility to, to embrace the truth joyfully. And with that, we would conclude this morning's service.